Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. When you are Deputy Director of Monetary Affairs at the Fed, you are known to write short, sharp notes. Seth Carpenter has been acclaimed at doing that across Wall Street for years, and he joins us uh, for his first Bloomberg conversation as Chief Global Economist at Morgan Stanley. Seth, congratulations on uh, your new position. you got to go fly fishing with Alan Zetner. That's the indoctrination at Morgan Stanley. I love the short, sharp note, everybody calm down about inflation. Why should we calm down about inflation? Uh I think if you look at the, the the details about what's really driving the inflation, there's lots of reasons to believe the inflation in physical goods really is being driven by supply chain disruptions. We've heard about that for a long time. I mean, when we talk to our equity analysts, it seems like most of those supply chains are starting to get a little bit better and at best, you know, and at least not get any worse. <clears throat> and so that means that the price level increases for those physical goods should be coming to their end pretty soon. We think we've actually peaked in the U.S. when it comes to inflation now, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit later for Europe. But the point is, the price level for those goods affected is, has probably peaked. They're going to start to ease off a little bit. That's going to pull down inflation for the index overall. It's maybe not a global uh, question, but I have to go to America. John Farrell mentioned this earlier Real estate, homes, rents folds into this call, certainly for G- G10 or maybe even G22. How does housing fold in to a subsiding inflation? It is the, uh, the, the force that's pushing in the opposite direction, especially here in the U.S. Uh, the Morgan Stanley team, you mentioned Alan Zentner, of the U- who runs U.S. economics for us, uh, for a long time has pointed to a really bullish attitude we've had on commercial real estate, multifamily home sector. So strong rent uh, increases really will help buoy uh, uh, those inflation measures. So you've got two forces pushing against each other. Rents are going to be creeping up. But we're going to essentially be where we were pre-COVID on sort of the underlying run rate on, on rent inflation. It sort of surged a bit coming out of COVID after some ups and downs. Now we're settling into, you know, fairly firm, fairly robust uh, housing market. That's going to lift inflation. The reversion, though, when it comes to those consumer goods themselves, that's going to be the things that keeps uh, inflation from rising further from here overall. Seth, you said that inflation had peaked. Can you help me understand where we stabilize? Do we stabilize at a higher level than where we were pre-pandemic? So I don't think so. And the one point we've been trying to stress to clients is there's actually two-sided risk. I find the, the, the story, the narrative to be inflation is high, it's probably transitory, but there's always the upside risk. And to be sure, we are in very different times. And anyone who has 100% conviction on the outlook is either lying to themselves or they're lying to you. Uh, That said, I think there is the chance of downside risk as well. So if you think of supply chain disruptions, if they get fixed sooner than we think, if some businesses have started to add capacity uh, on the hopes of this COVID rebound, then you could actually see those prices fall more than anticipated. And so you've got two-way risk to the outlook for inflation. So where does it end? I think for the U.S., middle of next year on a 12-month change basis, you could be looking at 2%, could be a bit lower. 
that outcome, that possibility was highlighted in the minutes to the last FOMC meeting where the staff forecast has their PCE measure of inflation going below 2% in the middle of next year. I think that's a, a realistic possibility. Reminds me of that famous quote. What was it, Seth? I forget who said it. If you interrogate the data for long enough, it'll confess to anything. <laughs> it feels like the moment we're in right now, doesn't it? If I look at the labor market, I can get this labor market data to tell me things are very tight. I can get it to tell me that things are very loose. When you look at it, what does it tell you? Uh, so I look at a few things. One, I look at where are things happening. So decompose issues in the, the shortfall we had in, in last week's uh, data, which was pretty uh, surprising for us on the downside. A lot of shortfall in hospitality and leisure, not surprising. Delta, uh, exposed, not surprising. The Delta variant surging means that a lot of those industries, they're just seeing a pullback. We think it's temporary. We think Delta will have peaked and will come down and, and the recovery will continue. But for me, that's one of the key points uh, in terms of thinking about demand. On the supply side, I look at um, labor force participation, especially prime age labor force participation. It's been creeping up for the past three months. It's well below pre-COVID levels. I think there's every reason to suspect it will continue to rise over coming quarters and possibly even years if we get uh, continued strong growth. So if we just tie this all together, when you say that inflation has peaked in the U.S., do you include wage inflation in that or is it entirely uh, a supply chain story? A uh, very good distinction, very important distinction. I was talking about uh, consumer prices there, and that's the part that's going to matter the most for monetary policy uh, explicitly. Wage inflation is, in fact, a different phenomenon. I think one key point that gets lost, and you can look at some of the research coming out of the Fed from some of their top uh, economists in the research and statistics division, not a huge amount of evidence in the United States of this wage push inflation phenomenon. The link between wage inflation and can finish consumer price inflation in the U.S. has actually been pretty weak over the past uh, couple of decades. Uh, wage inflation is clearly strong. There's been lots of disruptions there, businesses having to pay up to hire people back. I think we want to be very, very cautious, however, and look at some of the measures that do a better job of adjusting for composition. Because again, for the last employment report, we saw this big tick up in wage inflation, it was biggest in hospitality and leisure, which is also where we know the underperformance was. So when you're not hiring back the people who are at the middle and lower end of the income distribution, that calculated average hourly earning is going to get biased upward. So I think we want to be super cautious here uh, about any sort of medium and longer term inference about wage inflation. It was Ronald Coase, just in case... <laughs> You were wondering as well, Seth. Thank you. Good to catch up, Seth. Really good to hear from you. Seth Carpenter, Morgan Stanley, Chief Global Economist. <laughs> ben Lader joining us now, Etoro Global Market Strategist. Ben, I want to start with Bank of America's call. Savita's going to join us a little bit later this morning. She goes to 42.50 by year end. That implies 6% downside. It's an upgrade from 3,800. But let's be clear. The bear is still slightly bearish. Here's the line. Euphoric sentiment, margin risk, record duration pose additional risks. Ben, as a bull, as an equity market bull yourself, what do you say back to that? Yeah, sentiment is pretty full, right? But I think if the fundamentals keep delivering, as I think they're going to, um, and bond yields stay reasonably low, which I think they're going to, I think that gives you that clear roadmap to over 5,000 for next year. You know, um, I think we're going to get 20% earnings growth next year, which is, which is double consensus. I think that's both top line and margins, and we can get into it. But I think you have very good visibility you know, on that. And um, 
Bond yields are going to move up a little bit, but they're going to be a fraction of where they were when we came out of the last couple of recessions. The Fed's going to stay you know, reasonably dovish, I think, uh, to take sort of insurance on that this economy is really recovering. And, and that's going to keep valuations high, put that together. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I'm very comfortable with over 5,000 the S&P next year. Ben, the narratives that are being written are written of caution, maybe not gloom, but caution. How does a bull market happen given caution, not gloom? Yeah, I, I, I think it happens because of caution, right? I mean, this is this wall of worry that, uh, well, you know, we're now continuing to climb, right? We have some back-to-school nerves, you know, into the market. We've had this sort of remorseless rally since November, which is sort of worrying uh, people. And we have sort of have this trio of sort of, you know, event risk coming out of D.C., whether it's, you know, the, the renomination of, of Fed Chair Powell or the, or the budget limit or, uh, uh, sorry, the debt limit or, um, or or this, you know, three-point trillion that the Democrats are trying to sort of, you know, ram through Congress. I mean, all that may introduce some noise, introduce some volatility. I think none of that uh, will derail uh, derail this market. Um, it, it's really, you know, it's all about the fundamentals. I, 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 earnings expectations are still rising. Companies are getting more visibility back and they're talking about it more. I mean, that's pushing all these earnings numbers up. And at the same time, the Fed is, you know, gradually pushing back um, you know, expectations for for the taper and, and for the increase in interest rates. And I think, you know, that's that Goldilocks combination. When you say the fundamentals, you're talking about the fundamentals of the earnings of specific companies that dominate the S&P 500 in particular, that actually have perhaps fewer employees relative to their overall business. How much is that a feature that you actually celebrate, that you basically want to go into the dominant players in the S&P because perhaps they're a little bit more removed from this stagflationary light environment that we saw out of the beige book and out of a whole host of other data. Yeah, I mean, the stock market's not the economy, and, and we certainly saw that a lot last year, and we've, you know, enjoyed some of that this year. But I think, you know, look forward, where does the, you know, where does the incremental earnings come from? It comes from those reopening stocks. It comes from that, you know, it comes from the sort of real economy, which is underrepresented in the stock market. That's where earnings are you know, still down 80, 90% from, uh, from sort of pre-pandemic levels. And I think that's what I think you should be focusing on right now. I mean, the sort of growth nerves now, the sort of backward-looking sort of jobs report we had on, uh, you know, on, on, on Friday, I mean, that's a reflection of sort of peak virus cases. But virus cases have been coming down for three weeks in a row globally uh, and, uh, and potentially peaking now in the U.S. So I'm actually looking forward to that next step. You know, when are we going to start seeing that growth reacceleration? When are we going to start talking about uh, all these companies that are you know, not making any money now? When are they going to start you know, making money? And that delta is going to be enormous. On seeing the worst of it, Ben, Ellen Zentner and Morgan Stanley would agree with you. Andrew Sheets and Morgan Stanley, underweight U.S. equities, though. He's looking at Europe. You're making this call out of London. Look across the channel to Europe for us. <coughs> What's the Europe call now for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Europe actually leads here, right? I mean, you, you look at who's recovering from this sort of virus third wave best, who has the highest PMIs, um, you know, growth outlook in the world. It's Europe. Who's best prepared to benefit from that uh, with, you know, the most cyclical indices and the cheapest valuations? Uh, it's Europe. And who has the policymakers that are basically going to sit on their hands for an extended period of time uh, and let growth run? I think the ECB may tap the brakes a little bit today, but I, you know, I think they're going to be one of the last central banks to uh, uh, to actually increase interest rates. And fiscal policy is going to remain pretty loose. So I actually think the next couple of years, um, you know, European GDP is could be on par or even outpace that in in the U.S. Wow. And you know, we've just come off an earnings season in Europe with 140% earnings growth. Um, you know, that tells you, I think, the earnings leverage, which, which you're seeing today.
That is quite a call on GDP in Europe. Ben, great to catch up, sir. Ben Laidler, eToro Global Market Strategist. Savita Subramanian of Bank of America, the head of US equity and quantitative strategy, and she joins us right now. Savita, I'm interested in the process. You go from 3,800 to 4,250. Some people might call that capitulation. I'm not sure I'm in that camp. Just walk me through your approach to this market, to your forecast with other people throwing out numbers like 5K for next year. Sure. Yeah. The, the process is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a disciplined process. So we have a, you know, five five signals that we look at, which range from things like sentiment to fair value, valuations, earnings revisions. Here's what's happened over the last month, few months. Earnings have come in much better than expected. And the market has basically doubled off of the COVID lows. So essentially a lot of what, what we've done in terms of thinking about our target from here is how much good news is priced into the market? How much more can the market rise from these levels or is there downside risk in the months to come? And I think that, you know, part of what we're looking at is the idea that the market is essentially, the valuations of the market right now are leaving very little margin for error. Meanwhile, earnings have come in strong, but we're starting to see some harbingers of risk. And, you know, everybody's talking about supply chain risk and inflation. We're actually starting to see that come in the numbers. So every month we track this guidance ratio. We look at the number of companies that are guiding above versus below consensus earnings revisions or a consensus earnings estimates. Over the last, let's call it four weeks, we've seen that guidance ratio move from record highs to a, a big southward move. We're starting to see companies worn on profits and it's showing up in a broader way across the S&P 500. So first of all, earnings are at risk from just a cyclical pressure of input costs, wages, supply chain dislocation, et cetera. Second of all, when you look at the secular pressures on margins, we've had this great period of time for the S&P 500 of globalization. The past 20, 30 years have been about U.S. companies getting more global, you know, kind of arbitraging taxes, labor mm -hmm. costs, et cetera. Now look what's happening. We're at peak globalization. We're starting to see companies onshore. And what that's going to do is, again, right. potentially stall or reverse this kind of long-term great theme that we've had for big multinationals right. in the S&P. Savita, I want to pin you down on this. Partition for me the earnings dynamic, the nugget that we call earnings growth, the dollar amount of earnings of S&P index versus the partial differentials of price to earnings. Which of those dynamics are you focusing on with such a narrow call? Well, you know, I think it's more the PE that's that's making us think, okay, there's not a lot of upside from here. And I'll tell you one thing, Tom. So we have a, a valuation framework that's not very predictive over the near term, but it's kind of all that matters over the long term. The R squared on this framework is 80% in terms of... But can you, this is critical. I don't mean to interrupt, but this, folks, is math that's important. Is your R-squared valid given the dominance of those gigatech companies? Well, I'll tell you this much. It worked during the tech bubble. And this is an important point. I'm glad you brought up the gigatech tech companies because the last time this framework was as negative as it is today it was in 1999, another period where we were all kind of calling out the, the primacy of technology. And I think that today the bubble is potentially even more dangerous 
because it's not about you know growth stocks, which where tech ultimately grew into its multiples. It's about bonds, bonds and interest rates remaining as low as they are for perpetuity. I mean, this is what scares me, Tom, is that the S&P 500 has essentially turned into a 36-year zero-coupon bond. If you look at the duration of the market today, it's basically longer duration than it's ever been. So what that means is that any move higher in the cost of capital, be it interest rates, credit spreads, equity risk premia, that's basically going to be a huge knock on the market so, relative to, to the sensitivity we've seen in the past. So, so just yeah. real quickly here, you did upgrade your forecast, however. You moved up from 3,800. Why does this not become the bear case that you originally saw? Well, look, I mean, I think that the market could test, could move as low as 3,800 in the near term. But when we look at our frameworks and we think about, okay, where do we, I mean, points in time forecasts are fraught with, uh, with peril. But, but I think, you know, our, our view is, okay, earnings have come in a little bit better. Companies have been able to navigate a lot of the margin pressures. We're actually at peak margins today for, for S&P. So it's a pretty uh, remarkable story that corporate America has been able to manage, um, you know, the COVID-related risks as well as it has. But I think that now we're starting to see some of those areas fray, and we're, we're sort of waiting to see how corporate America deals with it. What would make me more bearish and go back to 3,800 is if we see inflation persistent and dangerous and companies unable to pass any of it on through prices, um, and if we saw a more hawkish Fed. I think the other thing that we pointed out in our note is that earnings matter for the market, but post-crisis, what matters even more is the Fed. And, and I think, you know, it's kind of remarkable. We have a chart in our note that shows that the Fed has basically explained half of the market moves outside of earnings um, since the global financial crisis. So you've got this market that's basically been fed by stimulus. We're now at a point where the Fed is talking about tapering. It's hard to imagine they're going to accelerate asset purchases. I mean, what gives? And, you know, the valuations don't reflect any of this risk. So Savisa, I think that, yeah. I've go only ahead. got 60 seconds left on the clock, but I don't want to leave you before asking what do you want to own right now within this equity market, yeah. away from the index level stuff? There's always a bull market somewhere. And what you want to own is the key stairs theme today, which is inflation protected yield. So let's say the Fed keeps rates low forever, but inflation is starting to bubble up. Don't buy bonds. Bonds offer you a fixed coupon that's not going to keep up with inflation. Buy energy uh, dividend yielders, buy financials dividend yielders, buy companies that are tethered to positively tethered to inflation and can pay a growing yield. I think that's the, that's the, that's the call right now, is, is really focus on income and inflation protection. Savita, this was great. Can you promise me one thing? Next time you come back, let's get you together with Jonathan Gollum at Credit Suisse again. And we can, we can, we can, we can <laughs> really? do a repeat. Let's do a repeat of that. Savita, it's good to catch up. We appreciate your time, as always. Well, Send our regards to the team. Savita Subramani of Bank of America. We are thrilled to provide clarity here. Maybe Holger Schmieding joins us with Berenberg, their chief economist. Holger, I want to go to the politics of the moment. I, I'm sure be unspoken within the press conference. The hawks, the traditionalists at the ECB, which you have beautifully enunciated over your career, 
How does Bundesbank respond to this semantic jumping through hoops on dovish practices? Well, the Bundesbank won't quite like it. But what we probably will learn is that today's statement, today's press conference, is only the prelude to the really big decision. The Hawks will now probably try to sum up all the strength to influence the December decision. In December, the ECB will probably not be able to duck the issue, namely, when does the emergency end? When does the PEP emergency program has to end? And as a result, expect the Hawks to make quite a few noises in coming weeks to prepare for probably a decision in December that will be hotly contested and may give us a better clue about the genuine tapering that will come at some time next year, whether it starts in April or whether it will take longer. Okay, this is really difficult for people to follow because there's two programs running in parallel. There's PEP on the one side, there's APP on the other. If they end PEP, because as you say, the clue is in the name, emergency, if that ends, what does it mean for the asset purchase program? That's another big open question. It probably will mean that the normal asset purchase program is beefed up and I expect it to be made moderately more flexible to react to market conditions, but to not be anywhere as flexible as the current emergency program. So the compromise will likely be, in my view, and it will be hotly contested, that in December the ECB tells us, yes, the PEP, the emergency program, will be phased out from April onwards. At the same time, the standard program that is open-ended will be raised a bit and made more flexible. So, but that's the debate for the next few weeks with the December decision. Rather than anything, we will probably learn the details about today. Today is probably just the day when we may learn, yes, there is a serious debate going on, and they have agreed to disagree until December. On a broader level, Hoger, the message from the ECB is similar to the one from the Fed. They will use all tools to get the average inflation rate uh, at target. Even if it exceeds temporarily, they're not going to be phased by that. And frankly, they talked about potentially even adding accommodation should that become necessary. This was incredibly dovish. And you do see bonds in the euro region actually rallying to a significant degree. Is this basically the market saying that they don't believe that the ECB could ever reach that goal that they're setting out in inflation? Well, the ECB statement today seems to be almost the same as the previous statements, so that is no change, except for this moderation of the pace of asset purchases, which, however, was flagged in advance so much, so that the bond markets, you could say, reacted already to that. Again, the outcome of what we will hear in December at the real decision is open, and the hawks will probably, in coming months, get even higher inflation rates, transitory, but higher inflation rates to make their point. So that will be very interesting. Question in the presser for President Lagarde, Holger. What is it? Sorry, say it again, please. If you've got a question for President Lagarde in the presser, the news conference in about 37 minutes' time. My key question would, of course, be how flexible can the standard asset purchase program be, the open-ended program, once the ECB finally declares the pandemic emergency over? It's not just the size of asset purchases, also this flexibility to react to market conditions, which is, if need be, help Italy and the like. It is also that element which really among the hawks is Hotly contested, and that's putting it mildly. We did not discuss that at today's meeting, Mr. Smeeding. We are committed to financial conditions remaining easy through the 
projected horizon. Yeah. Holger Smedy, thank you. You know what's going to happen mm. at 8.30 Eastern. Berenberg, Chief Economist, thank you. <laughs> 100%. Very much. This is tapering. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.